we are in the book of John. And just to kind of bring us back up to speed, we remember this very first statement that we've been looking at through the book of John, that Jesus the Messiah is the overcoming God King. Every time we look at a story in the book of John, every time we see Jesus speaking, every time we see interaction with him and others, we have to keep in the back of our mind, in the forefront of our thoughts, that Jesus is here to display, not just to Israel during the days that he walked on earth, but he's here to display to us, right here, right now, that he is the overcoming God King, that he is our Savior, that he is our Lord, and that he has come to rid us of all the challenges of this life, all of its trials and heartaches, all of its sorrows, all of its pains, all of its frustrations, all of its agony, all of its tears, to bring us into a relationship with him that is everlasting to everlasting. It is a beautiful thing that he has done and is doing in our lives today, demonstrating that he is our savior, and demonstrating that he is our conquering king. He is not weak. He is not insufficient. He is not doing this half-measured. He is doing it completely in our behalf, ruling and reigning even now this day in heaven above, waiting for the moment where the Father says, go back and bring everyone, dead or alive, into my kingdom. And there is nothing that is going to stop him coming. There is nothing that is going to stop him from raising the dead. There is nothing that is going to stop him from putting all of his enemies under his feet. There is nothing, not even all the combined powers of hell itself, can stop our Messiah, the overcoming God King. And we saw a great display and example of that last week in verse 18 of chapter 5. We ended last week, or two weeks ago, in John 5, 18, but this builds for the rest of the chapter, and I want us to be reminded of this moment that the Jews finally understood something unique about Jesus, and Jesus accepts it, because it's true. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he healed that paralytic man who couldn't walk, who couldn't help himself, who had no way of being saved from the ailments of being paralyzed. Jesus heals him. Simply says, take up your bed and walk. And he does. There's no formula here. There was no medicine here. It was God's power through Christ that just made this happen. And he was healed. And the Jewish leaders, all the religious people were upset that Jesus would heal a man on the Sabbath. And so they were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And I suppose you have two ways of responding to that. You have the ways that the Jews responded, the Jewish leaders, all the fancy people with all their education and all their privilege of the temple and the sacrifices and the people who ran things spiritually for Israel, they responded to that truth with hatred. Hatred. Hatred to the point that one day it would drive them to convince all of Israel to shout, crucify him. They hated the fact that Jesus stood over them in authority and power. 
And I imagine they were tremendously jealous that Jesus spoke of a relationship with God the Father with terms of endearment, with terms that focused on love and mercy and tenderness and a heart of sacrifice because the Jewish leaders were all about following the rules. And Jesus came to abolish the rules of man that the rule of love would reign in the hearts of his people. So one of those two ways that you can respond to Jesus being the Messiah, the overcoming God King, equal with God the Father, is to hate him for that relationship. Because if you hate him and you dismiss him, then you don't have to deal with the truth that he's proclaiming, that there's only one way to God. And it's not through animal sacrifices. It's not through tithing. It's not through attendance in a church service. It's not through volunteering. It's not from doing good or better than others. It's not from having more of a balance of good in your life than bad in your life. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with loving God because he first loved you. And that message of love was there in the Old Testament, but the religious leaders didn't see it, didn't understand it, didn't accept it because it's really hard to control people when all you're talking about is love controlling and not rule controlling. So you can respond to the message of Christ with hatred and wanting to kill him. Or you can respond with marvel and amazement. Uh, there was uh, a time in Bible college, one evening when a group of us were sitting around uh, some of the tables in the cafeteria, everything was closing down, it was later in the evening, and someone pulled out their guitar, which was super common. Uh, Christian, Christian school, and they started playing songs, and eventually they, they played a song, and we were all sitting around singing. There might have been 10, maybe 15 of us at the most, not very many, uh, but we were having an incredible time of spontaneous worship. And uh, whoever was playing their guitar that night started playing a song by Rich Mullins called Our God is an Awesome God. And we started singing that, and, and it's... It's, it's kind of repetitive, but it's repetitive in a really good sense because it's talking about the marvels and amazement of God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. Uh, that's the extent of my solo. But we started singing that, and then all of a sudden, someone added a, a different phrase. Not only is our God an awesome God, but our God is an eternal God. And then someone said, our God is a saving God. And then someone said, our God is a merciful God. Our God is a tender God. And it started going through all these wonderful attributes of God. And it felt like we never had to end because there was always someone coming up with something else that our God is this way, our God is that way. And I remember that night with great clarity that I walked out of that evening, and I don't remember when it ended. It felt like it went on like a half an hour singing these refrains and new ideas, not new ideas, but, but new principles from Scripture about God. And we couldn't, we couldn't run out of them. There were tons of them. And I remember walking out that evening, and it was a beautiful environment. We were in the mountains of Southern California, and the skies were bright and big and clear. And I remember just having this moment before God and I just said, wow, wow. That was my only response to what just happened. A group of 
college-age kids sitting around a, a cafeteria table just playing a guitar and singing our God is an awesome God for 30 minutes and seeing all of his creation. And I just simply said, wow. And today, Jesus is going to call each and every one of you to a wow moment. And he's going to tell us specifically in this text, following that healing and following that, that fighting that's breaking out among the religious leaders against Jesus, he's going to show us something marvelous to wonder about, to wow about. And it's not maybe what you would first expect. It's even better than that. So let's start this by looking at the first couple verses, verses 19 and 20, which really set the stage for us that um, demonstrates why we can have such marvel and wonderment and wow moments about Jesus Christ. It says in verse 19 and 20, so Jesus said to them, and again, he's talking to the, the Jewish leaders who at this point wanted him dead. And he hasn't really started his ministry very long ago. I mean, maybe six months, maybe nine months at the most, and they're already wanting to kill him because he's coming against the status quo. He's defeating tradition and replacing it with what Jesus, what God had always wanted at the beginning, people with a heart that worshiped and loved him. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, that's the Greek way of saying, you gotta pay attention, this is super important. What Jesus says next, super important. I know everything he says is super important. But when Jesus says, now is the time for eyes focused and ears opened and hands quiet, this is the moment he says, I say to you, the son, he's referring to himself, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing. First of all, what a tremendous statement. That when you see Christ interacting, when you see Christ teaching, when you see Christ correcting, when you see him loving, when you see him granting forgiveness, he's saying here, when you see me do that, you see the Father. Because everything that the Father does, I do. I'm doing nothing of my own power, my own volition, my own ability, my own wisdom, my own knowledge, my own goals and purposes. I'm doing everything that the Father wants. That the Father shows me, I emulate it. I reflect it. When you see Christ, you see God the Father. What a perfect example to follow. What a perfect reflection to demonstrate to us. But Jesus sets the record straight at the very beginning. I'm not inventing any of this. I'm not inventing a religion called Christianity. I'm just simply showing you what God the Father from the very beginning of time has set in our hearts, but we have abused it and mutilated it and transformed it into a rule-based religion. I'm just showing you back to where it first began, what the Father has revealed to me. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. A perfect reflection of the Father now, to be a perfect reflection of the Father, the Father has to do perfect things. He's not like us. 
There are days where we can say, yeah, follow me as I follow Christ. But there are other days where you're like, I hope no one's watching because I don't want them to follow me. In fact, I don't even want them to know what I'm thinking. I don't want to even invite them into my circle because it's, it's not a good circle to reflect from, to be an example of. But when you're taking the example of the Father and now the example of Christ, when you follow them, it doesn't matter. You will always be doing right. They will never misguide you. He will never lead you or show you a way that is not full of life. Even when he is correcting the Sadducees and Pharisees and, and the religious leaders of the day, even when he's correcting them and calling them whitewashed tombs and filled with sin on the inside, but the outside all looks pretty, even in that he's demonstrating love because he is bringing them to a point where they have an opportunity to repent. He's being gracious to them by giving them an opportunity of correction so that they would believe it in turn. Even in his correction, he's showing them love and kindness and long-suffering, patience. But whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. It, it is a hard I have to simply look at God the Father's interaction with God the Son. And I have to marvel at how tender it is. How tender it is. He shows them love. And I know last week was Mother's Day, and Father's Day is still a ways away, but It is a struggle as a father in this human, sinful flesh to consistently show love. Because there are times when the human father, instead of showing love, shows what? Anger, impatience, frustration, amazement that they did the same thing again. Disappointment. Don't look to human fathers as an example of good fatherhood. There are moments punctuated in our lives where we are, yes. It is far better to look to the one who is a perfect father to know how to love and respond to your children. And it goes for mothers as well. And when Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, the Son of God, when he thinks of his Father, one thing comes to mind. Love. What's the one thing that comes to your mind when you think about your dad? And be honest. Be honest. Is the first thing that comes to your mind love? Or is the first thing that comes to your mind the list of how they failed you, of how imperfect they were, of how they disappointed you in some way or fashion. When God the Son thinks of the Father, he thinks love, because that's all the Father has displayed towards him, love, 
love, love, love. And then Jesus says at the end of that verse 20, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel, that you may have wonderment. Now, what are all the works that the Father is showing the Son? We don't have time to mention them. One, the healing that just took place. Two, the demonstration of the Father's love. Three, the idea that he is a perfect reflection of the Father, that he can be followed and emulated and honored by doing exactly what the Father says, not to mention all of creation, not to mention his eternity, not to mention his holiness and righteousness and perfections, not to mention his tenderness, compassion, and patience. Jesus is not just talking about miracles that the Father is showing him. He's talking about his nature, the Father's nature being shown to Christ. Now they share that nature because they are both fully God. But in the role as the Son of God, Jesus is looking to the Father saying, you show me how to live because I'm going to ask everyone who follows me to do exactly what I've done. Follow the Father on how to live. You see, Jesus did not live a perfect life because he was somehow, um, let me rephrase all that. Jesus was indeed special, being fully God and fully man. But his relationship to the Father is not outside of our ability to have that same relationship with the Father. Jesus is showing us exactly how to live the Christian life as a human. It doesn't take supernatural powers and creating miracles. It's doing what the Father does, showing the world what the Father does, living the way the Father does, with all of his love, compassion, mercy, tenderness, and sticking to the truth, all of it. And so when Jesus lives the perfect life before the Father and before one another, he's showing us we can do the same thing. We can live in a way that reflects God. That is marvelous, wonderful, and full of amazement. And Jesus says that relationship, I want you to see that relationship between the Son and the Father and all that the Father does, and all that the Father offers, and all that the Father presents, you should marvel at that. You should go, wow. That's exactly what he says. I want, um, and greater works than these, he will show him so that you may marvel. See, there's a response that we should have to this beautiful relationship that the Son has with the Father and how the Son says that relationship can be ours. We can reflect the Father. We should marvel at that and wonder at that and just simply say, wow, i got a long way to go. But every step we take in reflecting the Father in our own hearts and to the world around us is a wonderful, mighty, work of God, because it's not your willpower that's doing it. It's not my motivation that's doing it. It's not the threat of punishment that's making you do it. It's love. Love from the Father, and you look at that and you go, why would he love me in such a way? He doesn't know me very well if he loves me unconditionally like this. And the son says, no, he knows you so perfectly that only love will fix you. 
And we get to participate in that relationship. And I think that's what draws the son to the conclusion, you're going to marvel at this. You're going to go, wow. You're going to go, amazing. You're going to go, I'm not worthy. And it just repeats the cycle because it goes circular time and time again. I'm not worthy, but his love is mine. Yes, his love is mine, but I don't deserve it. You're right, but it is. Wow, his love is mine. And it's just a, a circle of unending gratification, amazement, and marveling that God the Father would love someone like you. That Jesus' response is we should marvel. We should just go, it is too much for my brain to comprehend. Just, it, it boggles my mind. It, it makes no logical sense because we don't love like that. We love based on what I get and what I don't get, on what's in it for me. Now, yes, there's, there's love that we experience that is not bound to what I get and what I don't get. I know that. But by and large, our relationships with one another are based on, do I like them? Are they doing good for me? That's not how the Father treats us. The Father treats us with his type of love, which is unmotivated by how well you do. It's motivated simply by himself. I love them. He goes on in the next few verses to the end of that section in verse 24 to describe three kind of extra things that we can marvel about. So not only do we have this big umbrella of marveling that God loves the Son and the Son reflects the Father perfectly and we're called into that relationship and we're going to see that relationship build even greater and greater relationships with the Father and marvel about it. But he says in verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also will the Son give life to whom he wills. Something to marvel about? Is that something amazing? Is that something wow? Or is it kind of one of those things where you're like, yeah, you know, we've heard about this thing where he raises the dead, yeah. And gives life to those who are dead and, and creates this brand new type of relationship, being born again. I hope it's not boring to you. I hope that you don't feel like it's repetitive. I hope that you feel that it is something to say to God. Wow, you bring life to the dead. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he will. Why? We're dead. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We are enemies of God outside of his grace. We are not his friends. We're the ones crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, if we're honest. but he still shows us love. He still breathes new life into this dead soul. You ever wonder what you should praise God for? You ever get done with your prayer list for the day and you're like, 
what good has God done in my life this week? And you kind of have to make something up. You can always turn to the fact that he gives life, that he gives new life, and that the son accomplishes the same task as the father. He goes on and says in verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. This relationship between the father and the son are so close, and the father has such confidence that the son will accomplish all of the father's wills that the father says to the son, I now give into your hands rule and authority. And that rule and authority not only extends to bringing life, but to bringing judgment. And the reason why the son can bring judgment is because he's lived judgment. He will one day, years after he said this and spoke this, he will endure a judgment by the hand of God that would crush the world. The sins of the world were placed upon him. And he succeeded. And he came out the other side, victorious, full of life, resurrected. And he gives that life to us. So when he says and looks at a heart, he can determine it because he's lived it himself without sin, without fault. He knows right from wrong. And the Father gives him all that authority to bring life and to bring the sword of judgment. And Jesus says, this is one of the things that you are going to see expand and explode. And you can marvel at it. You can say, wow. You can say, amazing God. Even in judgment. Because Christ's judgment upon sin is perfect. It is perfect judgment. He knows the heart of the matter. He just doesn't know facts. Nothing is hidden from him. He sees it all, but he sees the heart and motive behind it. Our justice system in America tries its best to do right and to right the wrongs. It tries, but we would be foolish to say it's perfect. It's not perfect. It judges innocent people guilty and judges guilty people innocent because we are flawed. We can't judge rightly. We can do our best and put checks and balances and get witnesses and testimonies and evidence. But all of that can be lied about or hidden. The reason why we can say, wow, amazing, marvel at the justice and judgment that Christ brings is because it's perfect. Nothing is hidden. The law is crystal clear. And the motive, he knows the heart. He knows the thoughts that we can hide from others. He knows and pierces it. And so his judgment is perfect. And we can praise God for perfect judgment because if it was not for perfect judgment, if Christ was not a perfect judger, then we all would have to admit, maybe, just maybe, he missed some of the sins that we're hiding. And if he missed 
some of the sins that we're hiding, if he misjudged our motives, if he misjudged our actions, there might be a sin he forgot to die for or forgive. And that would be absolutely terrifying to go into final destiny with that last breath and still have sins unpaid for or dealt with. Could you imagine the terror that would grip your heart when you found out, there's still a sin I need forgiven? And there's no hope of it. It will not come. So we should be thankful and amazed and wow and marveled that Christ, the Son's judgment is perfect because all of your sins have been forgiven. All of them have been paid for. All of them have been shown mercy. Every single sin, even the ones you don't even remember you committed, are wiped clean. As far as the east is from the west, as far as the snow is brilliant white, your sins have been washed and cleaned. Is it not a good thing that Jesus is a perfect judge? Yes? Yes. Because without it, it's possible that a sin has yet been paid for. And what does every sin, even one sin, rightly and justly deserve before God's throne of judgment? Death. Death. So as odd as it may sound, 10 minutes ago, we can praise God with amazing wonderment and wow factor for his justice. Because in our lives as one of his children, it's all been paid for. He didn't miss anything. He didn't misread it. He didn't misjudge it. It's not hidden from it. Full disclosure, he knows it. And with full disclosure and ability, he paid for it. If that is not something to marvel about and be in awestruck wonder over, life and perfect judgment, it, there are not words sufficient to show appreciation and thankfulness for what he's constantly doing in our lives every single day. There is always something to praise him for and marvel about and be awestruck over, even in his judgment. He goes on to say, in case anyone is asleep in verse 24, truly, truly, <laughs> eyes up front, ears open, hands quiet, pay attention because what Jesus is going to say next is super important. Even though everything he says is super important, he puts an emphasis on this because sometimes we need to be awakened. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, some of your translations may read this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever is a really good person hears my word and believes. Or some of your translations may say, whoever, as long as they're not in prison for murder, rape, incest, uh, or your translation may also read, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever is not a politician and hears my word. Oh, no. And I know some of you probably have the translation that say, truly, truly, I say to you, 
whoever is uh, an American and hears my word. You see, we put in a lot of qualifications sometimes for whoever. I've told the story and I'll tell it to the day I die. The moment that 9-11 happened and we were on vacation that Tuesday in Washington, D.C., headed up to New York City that afternoon. Uh, plans got changed, but I remember getting back to the church and our very first time together, um, we prayed. I mean, the nation was in total disarray and there was one name that topped the chart of our prayer list that week and months to come. Do you know who that name was? Osama bin Laden. As a church, we prayed for him. And we prayed for all of those who were far off from God. We prayed for wisdom, and we prayed for a lot of things. But his name was the first one we uttered at our prayer meetings. Lord, save Osama bin Laden. Bring him to repentance, because if he hears your voice, he will change. He will be saved. Do you know how hard that was to pray that way? The weeks following 9-11, the months following 9-11, it was hard. It was hard because he doesn't deserve that. He doesn't deserve forgiveness and repentance. There's no way we're going to be standing shoulder to shoulder in heaven singing God's praises. Not someone like that. That's not the whosoever that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the good people already. Not the evildoers of the world, the tyrants of the world, the war criminals of the world. No, he means the word whoever. Anyone can turn for them from their sin and see the beauty of Christ's redemption and believe. And Jesus says that is something to marvel about. Because just as miraculous as it would have been Osama bin Laden being saved, it is just as miraculous that you're saved. Oh, Tim, did you just insinuate, and if I'm reading between the lines correctly, did you just put me almost in the same camp as Osama bin Laden? Yes. Because you have both sinned and you have both fallen short of the glory of God and without Christ there is no hope. So you were given that opportunity to hear God's word and believe and trust in him and you are now saved. All of your sins paid for because Christ is the perfect judge. Just as if bin Laden had heard the words of the gospel, believed and would be saved. Same Lord, same Father, same Messiah, same overcoming God King, same power and majesty and glory and justice. And salvation would be his as it is ours. So the whosoever is everyone that you can think of that doesn't deserve it. And we should marvel that that salvation is so sufficient that it could save an enemy of an entire nation, just like it saved us, enemies of God's kingdom. He then ends in verse 25 through uh, 29 in this section to talk about the basic concept that 
hearing Christ's voice, hearing the truth of the gospel can bring someone to life, and that not hearing the gospel and not believing it brings judgment. And he says it this way in verse 25. Guess with what words he starts verse 25 with. Wake up! Now's the time to look forward, ears attentive, and hands at rest. And pay attention to what the Lord has to say, because it is super important, although everything he does say is important. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. We already saw that in the verses previous. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. We already saw that. Because he is the Son of Man. He is the perfect reflection of the Father to us. If we want to know how to live a life pleasing to God, look at Christ. He is the perfect example of the Son of Man to us. And then he says in verse 28, but don't marvel at this. Okay, what don't I have to really be wowed over? For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He says, this should not surprise you and amaze you and make you feel uh, awe, struck wonder before God, although it still does in our life, that there's going to be a time when Christ returns and he's going to speak and the dead will rise and those who followed Christ, who did good, not obedience sake, but followed him, and those who did not follow him, they'll both be raised, one to everlasting life, one to everlasting judgment. And he says, don't marvel at this. Don't be surprised at this. Don't be struck by this. This should be common knowledge that upon the resurrection of all the dead, there will be those who enjoy life eternal and those that do not. The lesson here for us I think is best found in Romans 10, verse 17. He says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This book, reading it, and studying it, and hearing it, and listening to it, and thinking about it, and meditating upon it, and memorizing it, and internalizing it, and giving it to others is vitally important because through the word, we are given insight into how God is and how we are to reflect his glory in a way that honors him and in a way that is true and just. And I leave you with one question. Do you know with certainty how you will hear the voice of Jesus when the resurrection comes? Do you know for sure when he cries his voice of resurrection, will you be raised to eternal life or, build, or are you uncertain? Will you be raised to eternal damnation? Now, I, I am, I'm guessing by and large that if you're in church attending and you're, you're thinking about this, you, you're on the side of eternal life. But there is the possibility that you may not know 
that you may be unsure, that it may be confusing to you, that, that you look at your life and you say, it's not in line with what I see God expecting me, and so therefore I must not be a Christian. John tells us that he writes these things that we may know that we have eternal life, that we can have certainty and clarification that even though I sin, Christ's forgiveness covers that sin, and I am one of his children, and I want you to be convinced of that. But if you are unsure, I don't have the time at this moment to try and convince you of it. But I will do that one-on-one. Reach out to me. Reach out to one of the elders. Let us know if you're struggling with that certainty because I want you to have clarity and certainty about it because it gives you one more thing to marvel and wonder and be wowed how God has interacted with our mercies. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you for allowing us to hear the word of your Son. Thank you for allowing us to be convicted by it and comforted by it. May our life this week and even in our worship in this moment, may we sing in such a way that it is filled with awestruck wonder and amazement at how you loved us. In your Son's name, All of God's people said, amen.